Would you uh, bow your heads with me in reverence to our King? Dearest Yahweh, we are humbled and comforted by your immeasurable knowledge of all things. We cannot comprehend the fullness of your substance, which spans far beyond the limits of the universe you created by speaking direct authority over chaos, bringing it into order. How foolish we are to seek deliverance from things made by human hands or to seek guidance from our own foolish hearts. We so blatantly disregard your word. Is it because we lack the patience to meditate on your scripture? The prophet Samuel taught us that rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Yahweh, you see not as man sees. So look upon our hearts this day. Search us, O God. If there be any grievous ways in us, lead us in the way everlasting. Your rod and your staff bring comfort, for they restore our souls. Father, lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Spirit, sanctify us, make us new, wash us with the water of the word today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. We're glad to have you with us by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, whether here in person or at home. And uh, we have plenty of room for you at home. So if you're just holding off, it's time to come on back. Um, but there's a, this is a great crowd. I think this is the biggest crowd we've had uh, thus far in the, in the three weeks. So um, it's pretty similar to what we knew before. Amen. It's just a little bit socially distanced with some masks. Okay. So after about three weeks, you'll, you'll get used to it. It's no big deal. Um, for those of you that are still at home, we... Um, are thankful for you, um, and those of you that know that you're probably not going to come back for a while because of underlying health conditions, or maybe you're sick, we're praying for you, and we're thankful for you, and we totally understand. Um, and so we just are thankful to have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit a little bit more visible, I think, uh, even for you at home who get to see us in, in person a bit um, online. Um, why don't you guys go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be in a small section of Scripture for our main text today. But as I told the earlier uh, service, we're going to do a little bit of a two-for-one because we're going to look through this uh, section, but we're also going to look at Psalm 110. And my favorite comment after the service, last uh, service, was, man, that was a lot of information. And so you guys better get ready with your pens to write down uh, all the addresses I'm going to give you. We're going to do a really cool uh, study of Scripture that leads up into this place where we understand what underlies what Jesus is saying. Um, and so that's going to be our point today and our, our goal today. Well, think about, about it with me for a second. Have any of you ever had those moments where you say something that is so brilliant that you even surprise yourself? Has anyone, nobody's going to raise their hand and say, that's me, I've done that. But have you ever had that? You know, I think we've all had that. Um, something that could be described in today's verbiage as the perfect mic drop, right? Maybe... It's not been you, but maybe you've been in a group or a discussion where you're all talking and someone makes a point that is so astute and so wise that everyone else just brings, a, it brings them to a place of stunned silence. You ever had that before? 
Well, as a person who speaks in public and writes publicly sometimes, searching for that kind of a moment is, in a sense, the search for the Holy Grail, right? We all strive for that. And so isn't it amazing that throughout the Gospels and in Jesus' words, we see that he does this time after time. The wisdom of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, it seemed like it was dripping off of Jesus' every word. The text we'll look at this morning is no different. For the entirety of the chapter, Jesus has been locked in conflictual tests coming from the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And the scribe, in our last text that we looked at last week, was possibly coming, even with good favor, bringing a question for the rabbi. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees before him, they were definitely trying to trap Jesus, trying to test him to the point where he might lose face before his followers. And in each of these interactions, we've learned that he then speaks in a way that is wise and kind and almost peace-bringing, and it leaves the listeners stunned. Mark 12, 17 ends with this statement, and they marveled at him. Has that ever happened to you when you're reading the Lord's word or reading the words of Jesus and you pause and you just marvel at Jesus? Well, after the scribal test of rabbinic authority last week, Mark states that no one dared to ask him any more questions. The questions were over. They knew that Jesus had won the debate if there was one. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He then responds, and whether this was directly after or, or um, time had passed, we don't really know. But Jesus asks a question of his own. And this question could have very well been posed to the scribes that were listening or the surrounding audience. All of them listened in. And in doing so, Jesus is not directly confronting the religious leaders, but he's asking a question that causes the hearers to ponder to such an extent that it's almost as if Jesus is ascending above the question to get people to ask, who is Jesus? Who am I? He would have said, right? And this question leaves them all with a firm understanding of what Jesus is trying to proclaim regarding his own identity. And that understanding is what has given us our title for the sermon today, and what we're going to look at, is that Jesus leaves no doubt that he is the divine Lord of all. And by all, you know what all means in the Hebrew and the Greek? It means all. Nothing left undone, no rock unturned. Jesus is the divine Lord of all. So let's take a look and read at Mark 12, 35 through 37 and see what Jesus asks. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them... Oh, no, that was last week. Sorry. Here we go. Verse 35. (laughs) And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, before I move on, just think about this for a second. I think many of us read this and we pass by it as I'll I'll discuss in a second. But how many people do you call Lord in your daily life? How many of you, you know, have someone who comes into your life and they have such authority that you say, yes, Lord? That is so anathema to us as Christians and as, as uh, uh, American Christians, right? We, we think, well, there's nobody who's above me, right? I'm a pastor and an elder in this church, and I'm wise enough to know that at the end of the day, we don't really have any authority unless it's given to us, right? 
And so who do you call Lord? Well, as Christians, we should be calling Jesus Lord, but what does that mean? What does it actually mean that Jesus is your Lord? Because this scripture, we look at this king, King David, and he's calling someone Lord. The most powerful man in all of Israel is calling someone else an authority. Now, many of us who are used to hearing this quotation from Psalm 110 immediately think about the fact that it is referring to the Christ. This is the Messiah. Of course, it's talking about Jesus. But even if we have that understanding, I feel like we fly past this in the English And many times we miss that this is one of the most quoted and referenced Old Testament scriptures in the New. And so our task and our goal today, as we dig deep into scripture, is to see it in the fullness of how it would have been heard by those listening. So let's first begin to unpack it by looking at the underlying view of the Messiah in Judaism. And specifically, we're going to look at the background of the Messiah as the descendant of David the background of the Messiah as the descendant of David. And again, uh, it's been a bummer because I'm not able to teach as long as I normally do. And so uh, what I'm trying to do for you is give you enough stuff that you can chew on throughout the week. So I'm going to go pretty fast through some scripture, but write down the addresses and then go back and re-study it this week. And you can even re-watch the video or re-listen to the teaching. So let's take a look at the background of the Messiah as a descendant of David. We always have to remember as we're reading these narrative accounts in the Gospels or in Acts or as we read the epistles um, in the New Testament, when they refer to Scripture, what are they referring to? It's not a trick question. When the New Testament refers to Scripture, what are they referring to? The Old Testament. They weren't referring to themselves because they hadn't written it yet. (laughs) Or they were in the process of writing it. And so when it talks about the Scriptures are useful, those New Testament writers are talking about the... Old Testament, right? That's why it just cracks me up when people are like, I adhere to the New Testament, but let's leave the Old Testament, right? Well, you have to adhere to both, okay? And, and so we have to remember that this was the scripture that was mentioned. Prior to Jesus' entrance onto the scene, the people were waiting because of the Old Testament with passionate anticipation for the Messiah. But who was the Messiah to the Jews of Jesus' day? If you said that word Messiah or Mashiach, what would they have thought? Well, there are far too many scriptures to cover in 30 minutes because really the whole Old Testament speaks about the Messiah. But let's just spend a bit of time looking at just a few of those that specifically speak of the lineage of the Messiah. Remember that Messiah is the anglicized or English word for the Hebrew word that means anointed one. It's also Christ or Christos in the Greek. It's a king that would be anointed to lead Israel, lead God's people in obedience to Yahweh and in victory over the nations that were Yahweh's enemies because of their idolatry in worshiping false gods. And so this anointed king was to be a man that would do this in their eyes. It would make sense to them that it would be a man. Yahweh was a God who clearly stated that there is no other. He is a God that is one, right? And so as they read the Old Testament, they thought there's only one God, but then there's this other person or personality that's going to help us. Well, he's got to be a man. He's got to be a king. We think of the great Shema from last week. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. There's no other, so this has got to be a man, this Messiah. And so within this idea that the anointed king would be a man, that would mean that he'd have to be in the lineage of a king. That's how the entire ancient world worked, is that it was based through lineage. And you can scroll through 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Chronicles and see that this was the understanding of the Jews as well. So who was this favored king of Israel? And this is a good one for even the kids who know their Bibles probably better than a lot of us adults. 
let me ask you really quick, was Saul the favored king? No, Saul was not the favored king. Everyone knew that he was failed and denied by God. How about Solomon? Was Solomon the guy that was the hero of the people? No, he wasn't either. He was the wisest and richest of all the kings. But he fell in huge ways, even practicing idolatry based on the whims of his many, 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 many wives and concubines. And so it had to be David. And not just because of that, not just because of David's preferred status, but because of David's covenantal faithfulness, his covenantal faithfulness. God was entering into a covenant with David, and David, while he was a broken man who sinned, it was the Davidic covenant in which God showed his faithfulness to the people of Israel and to David himself. And so it was from this line that the Messiah had to come. So let me give you some scriptures. We're going to go through about five here really quickly that are scriptures from the Old Testament speaking of this fact that the Messiah would be in the lineage of David. Here's from 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. <clears throat> it says, when your days are fulfilled, God is saying this to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, now obviously, who's the one that built the temple? It was his son, Solomon. But then he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, which Solomon did a lot. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, everybody say chesed. Chesed in the Hebrew is steadfast love. It's love that doesn't leave nor forsake. It's enduring. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That means it would last beyond Solomon. Your throne shall be established forever. The kingship and the throne of David would last forever. This dual meaning between Solomon and the one that is to come, the Messiah. Take a look at Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. You guys are going to think we're celebrating Christmas here in July. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Pause for a second there. Years ago, it was big in, in, in Christian circles to talk about uh, Christians being anarchists because, you know, we're of the kingdom. And so that always uh, made me laugh a little bit because we, we, we can't be. We can't be anarchists as, as um, Christians because there is a government. It's just the government established by our Savior that we submit to, right? And so then it says he's going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. You guys know those words, right? In Hebrew, it's Sedekah Vamishpat. Everybody say it. Sedekah Vamishpat. There you go, okay? And so we always see that those two things are at the core and the foundation of his throne. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Messiah that comes from David will establish the perfect kingdom of righteousness and justice. And guys, he's done that because those who are truly his people operate in righteousness and justice. Well, Hans, what if you don't do that and you call him king? Then he's not really your king and you're not part of his kingdom. So even though it is weird and we look at the church as a whole and we say, well, there's tares and there's wheat, guys, the wheat are his kingdom. The tares are not. And so he has established already his kingdom in righteousness and justice. It's just not fully here yet. And so we have to remember that. And this is echoed by Isaiah 16, 5. 
Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. There's those words again, righteousness and justice. Take a look at Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute, there they are again, justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, that's salvation, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You may have heard of this as Jehovah Tzidkenu before, okay, or Yahweh Tzidkenu. And then we've got Jeremiah 30, verses 8 through 9. You're thinking, Hans, stop with the verses. No, guys, this shows you what the background and understanding of the Messiah was to those listening to Jesus. Jeremiah 30, 8 through 9. It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. He'll bring freedom for Israel and will rule over the nations. And notice that this one infers, it seems like it's inferring, that this person will literally be David resurrected from the grave. It's interesting. And then there's one more, and I, I know I said five, but I meant six. There's six verses I was going to give you. This is Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. It says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. And notice this is from Ezekiel. David was dead and buried. And yet, this is who would be their Messiah. All of these frame the idea of the Jewish people and what they could expect their Messiah to be. And at a bare minimum, their Messiah would come from the lineage of David. He would be one that seemingly resurrected from the grave and would be almost the better than David, right? And that's obviously speaking of Jesus the Christ. But the question is, would this Messiah be merely a man? Throughout the Bible and even within the first century, man after man would rise up and proclaim that they were the Messiah. But all of them would fail and be cast into the dustbin of history. And so in the context and timing of Mark 12, the people that day were at the temple worshiping Yahweh in full expectation of the coming Messiah that would be the promised one. You guys remember just a couple months ago now, uh, Mark chapter 10, where blind Bartimaeus is crying out to Jesus. And he says, have mercy on me. And he uses a title. He says, have mercy on me, son of David. This was the understanding they had and the expectation. And so one of the most widely known and well-known messianic psalms was that of our earlier reading. And it includes this idea of the lineage of David, but it includes something more. And so let's go there to Psalm 110, and we're going to break apart Psalm 110 and then come back to Mark chapter 12. Go to Psalm 110 and then give me an amen when you get there. Psalm 110. Psalm 110's authorship has been debated for a long, long time. And the question is, was it David that wrote it or was it someone else? Now, the only reason that it's debated is because it is blatantly the most messianic psalm that exists. It's so blatant that human commentators had to try and explain away why it's so miraculous that David would be inspired in the Holy Spirit to write about someone who wasn't himself, 
who would come and who would have a certain characteristic of divinity that we'll talk about in a moment. The other idea that many people have put forth is that this was written by someone else in flattery to David to say that God said to David, sit at my right hand. But that is not the case, and I'll show you why. There's two giant pieces of information that go directly against this idea. First, there's the scribal heading that's right there in your Bible that says clearly who the author is and was in this psalm. The psalm, it says there in your English, is a psalm of David. Now, what's interesting about this is that if we look at it in the Hebrew, this is what it says, okay? This is right from all the manuscripts that we have. It says, La David Mizmor, okay? Which means a psalm attributed to David, a psalm of David, okay? So right there, it would be pretty hard. They'd be lying if it weren't David. But secondly, most importantly, Jesus agrees that it's David, Remember when we listened to Mark chapter 12 this morning, it says that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Jesus was clearly stating in Mark 12, 36, and this was agreed with uh, by the religious leaders that David was the one that wrote the psalm. He was acting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to foresee and to predict one that would come. Now, that being established that this was David This is very important. Look at what it says next. What's the first line there in your Bible? It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in the English, this is hard for us. We get confused. Lord, Lord. Well, let's take a look at it in the original Hebrew here. This is what the Hebrew says. It says, Neum Yahweh la'adonai. That's a bit different than the Lord says to my Lord, isn't it? Neum Yahweh la'adonai. The reason this is important is that it literally reads in the English, the wooden English, Yahweh God says to my Lord. Yahweh God says to my Lord. Hans, why wouldn't they put that in the English? Well, because remember, the scribes, in order to respect the name of God and not use it in vain, when they would write out the Hebrew, they would write Adonai, which means Lord. And then that would get translated into the English. And so our way of fixing it is to put all capital letters, L-O-R-D. When it's all capitals, behind that is the name of God, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, or you might also hear it as Jehovah, okay? So him saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that's not saying that there's an actual chair sitting to the right hand of the throne in heaven, but it's an idiom that means come be in a position of power. I'm handing you my same authority. And it's not unlike what we've looked at in, uh, time after time in Mark uh, as we've looked at Daniel chapter 7, about one like the Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days and given dominion over all peoples, all nations, all languages, and his kingdom shall last eternally, never to end, never to be destroyed. And this is why many have debated that the psalm had to be written by someone other than David because David would never say about anyone else that they were his Lord other than Yahweh. I don't know if you guys remember this, but early in the Barack Obama uh, presidential administration, he went to go visit Japan. And there was this huge thing in the news because Barack Obama decided to bow to the, um, the emperor of Japan. And it's a very cultural thing to do, right? Everybody said, hey, look, he's just acting like the culture. But tons of people were so angry. Do you know why? Because the president of the United States is the highest authority in the free world. He bows to no one was the statement. This is kind of the same idea. If you were an Israelite, nobody, and I mean nobody, could get the king to bow to him. 
And nobody, and I mean nobody, could get the king to say, oh, my Lord. Because he was the Lord. You know how it went in hierarchy? God, king of the universe. And then his vice regent, the king of Israel. There ain't nobody between the two. And so this is mind-blowing that David would say, Yahweh, my boss, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's bizarre. And so this clearly presses the idea that this Messiah would be more than just a man, just an earthly king. He would have to be someone that would be equal in rule with the king of the universe. How can a man do that? He would need to be not only the descendant or the son of David, he would also need to be within the kingly lineage of God himself. The Messiah would need to be the son of God. And so this is why, from a triune nature, we call Jesus the Son of God, while also saying that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. How can he be both God and the Son of God? This is why. He is the one who inherits the kingly lineage. But let's continue looking at this psalm and unpack it a bit more. First, in Psalm 110, in verses 1 through 3, we see, if you can write this down, we see his kingly office. We see his kingly office. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is an office, this kingly office, is one that's exercised in a spiritual realm, as it is God enthroning his son in the heavenly throne room to rule over the kingdom that is here but not yet, and is established within the hearts of those that are citizens of his kingdom. Even though, at the same time, we're also exiles, ambassadors in a strange land on this earth. God is working to bring full victory and conquer the enemies of Christ, including death and hell and the kingdom of darkness. And he set forth from his temple, his throne room, here symbolized by Zion, the power, the scepter of his rule and law. And those who are his will offer ourselves freely, picking up our cross and giving our lives to him so that we might be purified by his forgiveness as our king. You see, he has the power to forgive us because he is our king. And we may, might be those presented before him in these beautiful, purified, holy garments, forgiven because of his power and his victory. And so then we, in these holy garments, as people worshiping him, this uh, reminds me of Romans 12.1 where Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus the Christ reigns over his people in forgiveness, sanctification, and justice. Amen? Amen. 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 Jesus is our king, is he not? Amen. Amen. Well, secondly, though, we see the Messiah's priestly office, his priestly office there in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, unfortunately, time holds us back from stepping into the fullness of Melchizedek, and I'd love to break it down more. If you want to read it on your own, you can go read in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, uh, as the core and the surrounding context. But Melchizedek is one of my favorites. You know why? He's the king of a place. You know what the name is? He's the king of Salem. He's the king of Salem. And he's the king of Salem because that name is Shalom. It's peace. Do you know that you live in the city of peace? Hopefully we're participating in being peacemakers in the city of peace. But he's the precursor of the Messiah to come. And Abraham offers sacrificial tithe to him after warfare. And his name uh, is, is used as this picture and type of the Messiah. It's a beautiful name. Everybody say Melchizedek. His name comes from two Hebrew words. Everybody say Melech and Tzedek. Melech means king. Tzedek means righteousness. He is the king of right. Melech, Tzedek, Melchizedek. He is the king of right or the king of righteousness. And so Yahweh has established Jesus to be the king of righteousness, but also the priest to the Father, God Most High. And he will never remove that role from Jesus. Jesus has that now and for all time. And I wish we had time to dig into this further because this, dear friends, Psalm 110, and this idea of the order of Melchizedek, it is the muse for the writer of Hebrews to say much of what he said or she said. We don't know the writer of Hebrews, whether it was a man or a woman. We can guess. But whoever the author was, they had uh, motivation to write this amazing stuff based off of Psalm 110. Now quickly, let's go to those places. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. It's in the New Testament there. And take a look with me at some of these scriptures that should have uh, huge um, they should have huge meaning based on what we're looking at today. And I'm just giving you a few. You can read through the whole book, and this should be ringing in your ears after today. Hebrews 5, let's take a look at verses 1 through 10. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, be a mediator. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, this priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That's kind of like a pastor, right? I am beset with weakness, and so therefore, I can empathize with you, right? I'm not like Jesus. No pastor is. Same with the priests. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is all referring back to Psalm 110. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him, God the Father, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What is the work of this priestly office that Christ performs even now? Well, first he performed the work of sacrifice. But rather than offer the blood of bulls or rams, he offered his own blood, his own body, on behalf of you and me and all who confess that they are sinners in need of his salvation. 
in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, we have seen this work of sacrificial offering performed. Look with me, though, at Hebrews 10, 11 through 17, and we'll see some other priestly action that Jesus performs on our behalf. Hebrews 10, 11 says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Where do you think they get that from? Psalm 110. Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Is that good news? All that we have done in rebellion against our God, he remembers them no more. And this isn't that he suddenly went brain dead, brothers and sisters. This is that he chooses, he chooses to remember them no more. I think in Christian circles, we've gotten this wrong idea of when we forgive someone, we suddenly just, oh, well, I I don't even remember that. That's not love. Love is to choose to remember it no more because of the work of Jesus Christ. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. By accepting his priestly work on your behalf and mine, dear brothers and sisters, we are forgiven of our sin. And this is the gospel. In Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we see that he then moved into the place of offering intercession on our behalf, operating as the one that mediates reconciliation between you and I so that we can be reconciled to God the Father. Is that good news? That's good news. Look with me at this last place in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." We'll keep going here. It's good stuff. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the other people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. What an amazing king. What an amazing priest that Jesus is for those of us who draw near to him in repentance and in need of salvation. Well, let's go back from here, back to Psalm 110 and finish off the last little section there. Psalm 110 right there, kind of in the middle of your Bible. We'll finish off this last little section there. This third office that Jesus holds, not only king and priest, but also prophet and more specifically judge. It's important to remember that prophets were not first and foremost foretellers of the future. That's how it's very much become in our society today and and our uh, popular theology. That was a secondary thing and they did do that. But the primary thing that they were supposed to do was act as Torah lawyers, acting on behalf of God's authority, coming to judge the people. Now, this is similar in our day to the idea of when a district attorney acts on behalf of the government entity they're performing the duty for, and they come and they bring charges against one who is supposedly guilty. And so quite often, the prophetic books, they record the prophets acting as judge, and Jesus is fulfilling the same office. The Messiah will fill this same office. Take a look there at verses 5 through 7. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In the same way as these earlier prophets that act as Torah lawyers or judges, Jesus, the Messiah, comes as the anointed one of Psalm 110. And he acts in this way of judgment, passing judgment on those who would not submit to his reign and would not come under his lordship. And this isn't because he just needs it and he's ego-driven and he's narcissistic. That's not our God. It's because he is the God of righteousness and justice. He is the good, good father, the good, good king. And so for someone to not submit to him, including myself, that shows how disgusting and depraved our hearts are, that we are unwilling to submit to the best, the good of all entities in the entire universe, the one that is just and righteous. And it shows that I alone want to be Lord of my life. And I deserve death and hell. But praise be to God that he found a way to rescue me from myself and to call me to himself. King, priest, and prophet are the offices that the Messiah would fulfill. And David did not, nor ever desire to, nor was he commanded to by God to fill these roles. This is not David. There's no way this is talking about David. Only the Messiah to come, the Son of God, the anointed king that would bring peace, only he could be this person. What an amazingly inspired psalm, amen? And so back in Mark, did you guys forget we're in Mark? I've taken you everywhere today. So tour across the Old Testament. Back in Mark, let's go there and we'll finish up this morning there. Back in Mark, we see Jesus bring this to bear. And I'm going to show you up on the screen the same story, but from Matthew. And Mark paints it in almost a discussion format. Matthew paints it a little bit more conflictual. It says this in Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? And no one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. No one was able to answer him. Why? Because they knew the answer. But to say it would be sacrilege. They would need to admit that Jesus, the one standing before them, was not only the Messiah, but also the son of David. And not only the son of David, but also the son of the king of the universe, the son of God, and therefore divine Lord of all. Now, do you see why, dear church? Two days from this point, not even 48 hours later, they want to arrest him, beat him, and crucify him. He literally said, I am the son of God. It's because Jesus is claiming in this moment that he is God, the divine Lord of all. Jesus is God, the divine Lord of all. And this is why we can't subscribe to any theology that does not declare the triune God. This is why we're Trinitarians. This is why we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, we read this passage and zoom by it, recognizing that it's speaking of Jesus, but missing the weight of how much of a mic drop it truly was in that day. 
For the New Testament church, this was the core of their belief system. Do you realize that this first verse of Psalm 110 was not only uh, quoted, but also referenced a grand total of 27 times in the New Testament? It's either quoted or referenced 27 times in the New Testament. It's referenced even in uh, Paul's famous opening to his letter to the Romans. This is Romans 1, 1 through 6. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, say God's son, who was descended from David, David's son, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. See that, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, son of David in the flesh, son of God in the spirit. By using this psalm, Jesus puts to silence those who are trying to entrap him, but more so, he throws down the gauntlet, challenging people to ask the question of who he was and is. And maybe this is why Mark finishes the section with the phrase, and the great throng heard him gladly. Perhaps it's because the people heard what Jesus declared and rejoiced in the fact that their Messiah had come. And perhaps that is why Matthew, from a different angle, said that none of the religious leaders dared to challenge him again. Dear church, there could be no clearer declaration in the world for the religiously-minded, scripturally-founded Jewish people than for Jesus to use Psalm 110 to declare his role as Messiah and God. And by doing so, Jesus declared that he is indeed the divine Lord of all. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus has perfectly fulfilled and is fulfilling the role of king, priest, and prophet. Only Jesus deserves our thanks for his ability as king to grant us freedom from the kingdom of darkness. Only his ability as priest to pay the price for our sins with his, only, with his own sacrifice. And only Jesus can judge us as justified in the eyes of the Father. Only Jesus can do this. He alone is our Lord. Now, in a literary fashion, Mark is brilliant in this closure of this section of conflict with the religious leaders because, remember, he started with the parable of the tenants and the owner of the vineyard leased out his fields and the tenants took what they wanted. When the owner went back to get what was rightfully his, he sent his servants, the prophets, a picture of the prophets, and they killed them and beat them. And then he said, surely they won't do that to my son. And so they sent his son. By finishing with this statement from Psalm 110, Jesus is putting the bookends, and really the author Mark is putting the bookends on this section to say, you scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees are the very ones that he was talking about in the parable. And he is the very one that is the son of the Lord of all. Here in our text today, Jesus is claiming to be that son of the ultimate authority, God himself. And in so doing, Jesus is foretelling their ultimate act of rebellion against God and killing him. And he's also condemning the religious leaders and calling any who hear him to cast down their reliance upon their identity as religionists and instead to pick up their role as citizens in his kingdom. So we see in this, as we have throughout Mark, 
The very bold question that's a theme that runs throughout. But who do you say Jesus is? In other words, do you agree with Jesus that he is Messiah, Son of God, come in fleshly form to be king, priest, and judge of the entire world? It was this question that caused men and women to respond in awe after his death and resurrection. One last place that I'm going to turn you to, if you would, go with me to Acts chapter 2, a little bit to the right in your Bible. Acts chapter 2, 29 through 39. This is the last place I'll turn you. Acts 2, 29 through 39. This idea of who do you say Jesus is and the fact that he is Lord of all is what actually caused deep repentance in the people. And I firmly believe that this is the question that needs to be asked of the world today and the world around us as we go as missionaries into Salem and the surrounding areas. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Lord? Take a look there at Acts 2, 29. It says, brothers, this is Peter speaking to the people outside the temple. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he pointed to the very fact that we have been seeing this morning, that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised, the Son of David and the Son of God. And because of that, he is the reigning king, the acting priest that has purchased forgiveness for us by his own sacrificial blood. And he is the one that will come soon to judge the living and the dead. It is this declaration that caused men and women to check their hearts, to be pierced in their hearts, and to recognize their need to bow their knee in submission to Jesus as Lord. Brothers and sisters, for any of you here in front of me or any of you that are online watching, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Lord of all, including your life, your heart, your opinions, your attitudes, your social media account, your words, your mind, your marriage, your parenting, your free time, your hobbies, your soul, your strength, your mind. Is he Lord of all? Because if he is not, today is the day to repent and to submit your life to him. And if you want to do that, 
right where you sit, you can cry out to him because he is the perfect priest. And you can say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And then if you want to, come talk to me after service or email me at hans at missionsalem.com. And if you're here and you want to be part of this church and you want to step into baptism to declare in the midst of the community of the church that he is your Lord, then we'll arrange to baptize you and we'll do an awesome social distancing gathering down at the river while I dunk you in the water. And I said to the earlier service that we can even do this. This is biblical because John the Baptist was a social distancer. Did you know this? He didn't actually lay people back. He stood at a distance and watched them curl into the water in the fetal position and stand back up. That's the way you would baptize people in uh, Judaism. And so even social distancing will make it work with baptism so we can baptize you into the community of faith. We'd love to walk with you. We'd love to disciple you in the name of Jesus and what it means for him to be Lord. This week, I want to encourage you to truly ponder and meditate on one question. What does it mean for you that Jesus is your Lord? It's so awesome for us to be able to say, Jesus is our Savior, man. Amen? And we should never let that go. But what does it also mean for you to say, Jesus is my Lord? I want you to verbalize this week and even write down your answer so that you're ready to answer anyone who asks, what does it mean that Jesus is your Lord? And then ponder what a wonderfully amazing sacrifice, what an amazing sacrifice that it is that the Lord of all the universe, the King of the universe, would condescend to human form so that he might give himself so that you and I might live eternally. Psalm 110 And Jesus' words here in Mark 12 help us to understand how amazing the love of God was for you and I, that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die so that we might be reconciled with him. Today, dear church, we worship, we gather to worship Jesus, the divine Lord of all.